If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 10 this morning. Romans chapter 10. Well, the Lord is risen. risen It is a great joy to be with you on this Easter morning or uh, preferably speaking, Resurrection Sunday for God's people. Regardless of whatever traditional family events that might be taking place, despite uh, the emphasis on chocolate bunnies and marshmallow peeps, today is about a man who died and came back to life. And not just any man, but God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Across every denomination in the Christian religion today, believers around the world are worshiping together with a special focus on the resurrection of Christ from the dead. It may surprise you to know that historically, every Sunday is meant to be an emphasis on the resurrection of Christ as God's people gather together. It's the day of the week that He rose from the dead and therefore the day that His disciples chose to gather together to worship Him as His people for preaching, for prayer, for fellowship. For the new physical life of Christ seen in Him rising physically from the dead out of the grave is the basis for our new spiritual life. And we'll receive the salvation that God gives through faith in Him. At the same time, there is a real sense in which having a specific day to remember Christ's resurrection is important for the Christian church. Unlike other religions that have at their core some philosophical or spiritual idea, Christianity has historical events as its core. Christianity is about the one true and living God, the one who created all things breaking into history with acts of saving grace. The Almighty has not just made us, but He has involved Himself in our lives. He has come down from heaven and walked on this earth, revealing His character and His purposes with mighty acts of salvation. These actions, of course, culminate in the coming of Jesus Christ. Thus, Jesus is not just an idea nor do we merely follow his teachings. It is essential for the Christian faith that Jesus was a real person who walked the earth. He had a public ministry, he had a public execution, and he had a public resurrection. In fact, the entirety of the New Testament is written either by those who saw him alive or who came to believe he was alive by their eyewitness testimony. Those first disciples preached the good news, the gospel, that they were eyewitnesses to these things. Paul summarizes what they preached in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, We preached what we saw, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And I love how Paul adds, And most of them are still alive if you want to go ask. If you think I'm making this up, go find those guys and ask them what they saw. They saw Jesus risen. My point is this. Christianity is a religion rooted and grounded in history. If you take that away, if you take away Jesus is a real person, you take away his real resurrection from the dead, you have no Christianity left. It's rooted in history. But this morning, we also want to see that Christianity is not just rooted in history, it is driven by preaching that tells of that history. Over the last few months, we've been making our way through the book of Romans, one chapter at a time, and today we come to chapter 10, where the emphasis is on the preaching of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're visiting here, you haven't been with us for that series, don't worry. You're still going to be able to track along with us. But if you are a member and you have been here, then you'll see how this chapter connects to what we have seen before today. 
As we pick up where we're, where we're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 10, we need to remember that Paul at this point is thinking about his brothers and sisters according to the flesh. He is thinking about those who share a common ethnic and religious background and identity, the Jewish people. And, and he is lamenting in these chapters that though God had promised salvation to them, that the predictions of the coming of the Messiah came through them and through their law, they by and large did not receive him. And so Paul continues to explain why that does not show the word of God has failed, just despite that, even though Israel has not experienced salvation. Follow along as I begin reading uh, Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is for the Jews, is that they be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all believed the gospel or obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says... All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is the word of God. May he bless its reading today. A key theme in this chapter, as you saw it multiple times, is righteousness. What is the righteousness that we need to stand before God and be acceptable to him? How do we obtain it? Those questions are answered in the idea of preaching, specifically preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if we were to summarize our message this morning, we might say this, we must not neglect preaching for it is the means by which we hear of God's righteousness in Christ and come to embrace it with saving faith. That's what we're going to see this morning. And in fact, that was Paul's prayer for his people. So as we begin, we see from his example in verses 1 through 4 that we ought to lift up gospel prayer. As God's people, we ought to lift up gospel prayer. 
continuing to speak about Israel from chapter 9. Paul tells the Christians in Rome to whom he is writing, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. What does Paul desire of his people according to the flesh? That they may be saved. And thus here we see his heartfelt prayer. His heartfelt prayer. What Paul describes is no mere formality. It's not just like, oh yeah, I know this is the right thing to pray for, and so I'm going to pray for it. No, this is not a routine concern. This wells up from within the deepest parts of his soul. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Why aren't they saved? He tells us they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They are pursuing God. They are serving God. They are speaking of God all with great zeal, Paul says. Yet they lack a right understanding of what it means to know God, to be known by Him, to experience His righteousness, and so be saved. They are ignorant, he says, verse 3, of the righteousness of God. And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. I think most of us know the old saying that is sometimes more truth than parody. When a man is lost... He does not stop to ask for directions. He just drives faster. Anybody can relate to that? What is that? It is misplaced zeal. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm getting there fast, right? It is zeal without knowledge. And as funny as that is, especially if I have fallen into that trap once or twice, as my wife can attest, it is all the more heartbreaking for Paul to see that in action with his people because what they have a zeal for and yet no knowledge of is matters of eternal weight and consequences. More than that, I think part of the reason why Paul is so passionate for his people in this regard is because this was his own problem before he became an apostle, before he came to faith in Christ. You can read about it in Philippians 3 and in Acts 26, where he used to be like that, zealously going hard after God, seeking to establish his own righteousness, not realizing that he can never be right with God by his own righteousness. He needed the righteousness that comes from God by faith. And so as we think about this today, many people say that they are spiritual. Many people claim to be serious about God, but that's not enough. Zeal without knowledge, passion without understanding will send you to hell. Nevertheless, Paul's heartfelt prayer was also a hopeful prayer. It was a hopeful prayer. Why is it hopeful? Because he thinks there is still time for them to be saved. He still desires, he's still asking God to save them, that they will see their sin, repent, and believe, that they will see the folly of seeking after their righteousness according to the law. Why? Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That is to say, the point of God's old covenant law was to point to and prepare for the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, He is the end to which it points and therefore brings it to an end as an abiding law over God's people. Christ has come. There is a new covenant. Therefore, the old law is no longer binding. The law of Christ is what is binding on our life. His instructions for how we relate to God. And so Israel is deceived and clinging to the old law, thinking this will make them righteous before God. Paul says, no, Christ has come and he has brought an end to the law. They should find their righteousness in Christ and not in the good commands that God has given. Now, it's easy to see 
in some ways, how Paul can be intent on praying for his own people. But stop and consider this. When you read Acts, when you read the letters, what do you see his own people doing towards him? Paul has been commissioned to take the gospel to the Gentiles, which we'll hear about in a few minutes. But what does he always do first? He goes to the Jews, he goes to the synagogue, and he preaches Christ. Sometimes people get saved, but most of the time, there's a fight that breaks out. Paul himself is threatened or even attempts are made on his life. They are coming after him with threats of violence, if not actually seeking to kill him. And yet, what does he do? He continues to pray for his people. He continues to desire, even with that level of hostility, he continues to desire their salvation. So, let me just push a little bit on us a little bit. Let's just make us a little bit uncomfortable this morning. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 5 that we ought to love our enemies and pray for them. I think Paul is exhibiting that right here. And, and we can personalize that. We can think about our enemies individually, and that's not wrong, but let's think more broadly for a moment. Let's consider those who would think of themselves as our enemies who would have a zeal for God, but would lack any real knowledge of who He actually is and how they can experience His salvation, would not immediately in our minds come groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda? Let me challenge you as you think of your friends and your family and you pray for them to experience Christ. Won't you also consider your Muslim neighbors and their great need of salvation as well? Rather than simply complain and live in fear, let us proactively lift them up with gospel prayers that God might reveal himself to them, to give them a knowledge that would match their zeal. And rather than seeking to attain a righteousness on their own, they would find righteousness in Christ. They may live down the block or around the world, they may be completely indifferent towards you, or they might wish your death. Either way, let us pray that though they are blinded by their sin, the one true and living God would give them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, we are praying that they believe the gospel promise. And in fact, when we look to verses 5 through 13, we see that's the response that we should come away with, that we ought to believe the gospel promise. We ought to believe the gospel promise. What kind of promise is this? First, we see that it's a Christ-centered promise. A Christ-centered promise. Paul begins in verse 5 by quoting from the Old Testament to ground his argument. Here's what I'm saying. Listen, I'm not talking about anything new. This is the way it's always been. This is what God predicted. This is what God said would happen. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But... The righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your heart, mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now you're thinking, what in the world is he talking about? Ascending, descending, going up, coming down, bringing Christ different place. What in the world is he talking about? Well, he's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy where Moses is preaching to Israel. And, and he is reminding them, look, you didn't have to go get the law. 
You, you, didn't, you didn't have to go journeying after God's salvation. No, you don't have to ascend to heaven and get God's attention for it. You didn't have to travel across the abyss of the sea in order to find it. No, he says, God found you. He brought his word near to you, and he is predicting, if you go back and read, maybe some of you already did, hint, hint, if you're with our Bible reading plan for this year, you already read how Moses, as they're getting ready to go to the promised land, says, guess what? You're going to fail. You're going to sin. You're going to rebel. You're going to go into exile. I'm thinking, boy, that's a sermon, right? You know, live according to God's commandments, but when you fail and you fall on your face, know that God is going to bring another prophet. There is going to be a new covenant. He's going to send his spirit into you. The word is going to be near in your mouth and your heart. And so welling up within you will be a real obedience, a lasting obedience. And Paul is applying that prophecy here and saying with the gospel also, we do not need to get to God by going to some extraordinary means to receive salvation. He he does not expect some incredibly difficult journey. Right? This is not Lord of the Rings going to Mordor or something. Okay, that, That's not how we achieve salvation for God. We do not need to live a lifetime of guilt and shame as we struggle and strive to be righteous before God. God says, don't bother. It's not good enough to be saved. Instead, just with Israel, only more so, the word is near you. Jesus Christ has come down from heaven. He has become flesh to accomplish our salvation. He lived a righteous life in our place and he died under God's wrath for us. There's no need to go searching after him in the abyss of the grave for God has brought him back to life. That is what we rejoice in this morning. God has brought him near to us through the preaching of the gospel, the promised gospel of Christ. That is why salvation depends, Paul says, not on works, but on the word of faith, believing that promised word which is preached to us. The message in pop culture today that you hear implicitly, sometimes explicitly, is believe in yourself. Even watching PBS Kids, that's what they sing before Arthur. Believe in yourself. Some of you know that. You have little kids. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Even the in-between little ads that they show and and whatever they're supposed to be, encouraging um, confidence in kids. You know, I remember sitting down with my my kids at a young age, even before they confessed faith in Christ. I thought, well, I'm doing something right. Because they're saying, trust the person that knows you better than anyone else, yourself. And one of my kids said, that's not right. God knows me better than I know myself. And I said, yes, preach it, preach it. Don't believe in yourself. That's not what the Christian faith is about. Saving faith says look away from yourself and what you can do and look to Christ who's done it all. Paul says in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, when Paul mentions the heart, we may be tempted to think of our feelings. But notice the Christian faith is not about feelings. It will likely come with feelings. We saw wonderful feelings displayed this morning through the public testimony of baptism. But it's not based on feelings and emotion. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, think about, think about how fickle we are in our emotions. Once again, you get the kind of popular multimedia message 
We got, we got a great Star Wars movie for the first time in like 17 years. So my kids and I are like on a Star Wars buzz. But the other day we were watching that first movie and Luke's going into the Death Star and he hears Ben Kenobi whispering his voice, Luke, trust your feelings. And I almost laughed out loud. I thought, trust your feelings? What kind of advice is that? Our feelings go up and they go down. They move in and they move out. If I lived on the reality of my feelings, I wouldn't be married. I wouldn't be a pastor. I wouldn't be a parent. I would have abandoned all of it. Because I'm a sinful, fickle man. And the Christian life is not lived on feelings either. It is lived on truths, believes about Jesus. We can't trust our feelings, but we can trust him. What do we believe about him? Number one, that he is Lord. Now, we're so used to saying, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, we sometimes miss the reality. That's an Old Testament expression for God. So here is Paul, a good Jew, a monotheist, who knows from the law it is blasphemy to sin to call anyone God, anyone the Lord but the Lord. And what does he do? Jesus is Lord. Wow. He is saying Jesus is equal to, he is the living God. He is God the Son. That means more than just he is divine. That means also he is the king. He is the master of your life. So let's put away any of this notion of, well, I can trust Jesus for my salvation, but I can still live however I want. No, 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 no. No. You confess, you believe, you trust that Jesus is your king. He is your divine master. That is what saving faith come, is about. It, it's the first thing that we believe. But notice, secondly, we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now that requires that we first believe he died, right? We said earlier, Jesus died bearing our punishment for sin under God the Father's just and righteous wrath. And because of that, God brought him up from the dead. So we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I don't remember who, who I was listening to a year or so ago, but they, they made this point. Sometimes Christians get so timid out in the public square voicing our beliefs because we're afraid we're going to look odd to people. We're going to look weird to people, right? So someone brings up the issue of gay marriage or something, and, and, and we kind of just you know, get our drink and just kind of be quiet and, and just wait for it to end. Because the moment we say, listen, I believe that God has made clear that we are to love all peoples. He is also the one who has created marriage and defined marriage, and that's not real marriage. Well, who do you think you are, right? How the time? So we just like, no, I'm not going to say anything, not going to say anything. Or we talk about our sexual ethics, or we talk about our stance on, on, on the sanctity of life or so many other things that are out of step with culture, suddenly we, we're afraid we're going to look like freaks so we don't say anything. But can we, just, can we just stop and put all of that in perspective? That's small potatoes, friends. Because if you are a Christian, you believe that a short, non-good-looking, that's what the Scripture says, Middle Eastern man that may or may not have followed in his footsteps of the father, a mere carpenter, who was an itinerant preacher, a miracle-working prophet, was also God in the flesh, who allowed himself to be brutalized and killed on a cross for your sins. And more than that, after he was put in the grave, after his body was wrapped up and the stone was rolled there, this dude came back to life for real and cooked breakfast for his friends who had denied him. Friends, that, it doesn't get any weirder than that. 
Let's just be honest. In the eyes of the world, it does not get any weirder than that. Don't sweat the small stuff. Believe the important stuff and understand that as odd and as weird as that may be, it is glorious to those who believe because it means I can know God, not by jumping through hoops and wheels and, and, and denying myself and all these things. No, no, no. Christ has done it all for me. His resurrection is the, valid, the, the validating, the vindication of his saving work. Jesus is not a great teacher. He's not a mere prophet. He's not a great moral example. He is the Savior, crucified, buried, and risen, that we might have forgiveness of sins. And who is the Savior for? The coming of Christ was promised to Israel. He didn't just come to save Israel. Paul says in the gospel, we not only have a Christ-centered promise, we have a comprehensive promise. A comprehensive promise. Look at verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's open to anyone. It doesn't matter what your ethnic background is, your financial standing, your criminal record. The gospel promise of salvation in Christ is open to all. That means as God's people, you can never look at someone and think the gospel's not for them. And if you are not yet a Christian and you're struggling with, 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 with guilt and acceptance, you don't get to say, that can't be for me. God says it's for you. He looks at you and says, come to me and find forgiveness Allow me to take the burden from you because my son has borne it for you on the cross. And, and if you're still wondering, how, how can it be true? How can it be true? Consider the testimony of the great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon. In a sermon he preached on this verse, he told his church, please notice, dear friends, that in the 13th verse, we have the way of salvation set before us in the plainest terms. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I remember well when I lived on that verse for many months. I longed for salvation. I could not see that there was any way of hope for me. I thought that I must be left out, that I was too sinful or too hard or too something or other so that others might be saved, but I should not be. But when I read this verse, I did what I asked you to do. I caught at it. It seemed like a lifeline thrown to a sinking man. I clung to it and it became a life buoy for me. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's oh, a glorious verse. Anyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But understand what that means. As evangelicals, we have been notorious over the last several decades for reducing saving faith to a mere so-called sinner's prayer. Yes, if you want to pray to God and ask for salvation, do it. But do not think that somehow just saying the right combination of words brings salvation. It's not a magic formula. It's not a spell. You're not at Hogwarts. That's not what it's about. I've told before the story of Charles Blondin. He was a French tightrope walker who came to North America in the 1800s so he could walk across Niagara Falls on a wire. After that wire was set, he called out to the reporters that gathered there and he said, do you think I can do this? Do you think I can do it? And they're like, yes, Blondin, yes. His reputation had preceded him. And so as a kind of stabilizing 
uh, device. He gets a wheelbarrow up there and he, and he, he slots the, the wheels on the, on the wire. And he says, do you still think I can do it? They say, oh yes, you're the greatest, you're the greatest. And he says, wonderful, who's going to get in the barrel? Nobody wants to get in the barrel. There's two different things going on there, isn't it? There's agreement and then there's faith. Agreement says, I can believe you do it, I believe you do it. Faith says, I'm getting in the barrel. I'm getting in the wheelbarrow. Likewise, when Paul says those who call upon the Lord shall be saved, he's not thinking of mere agreement. He's not thinking of a meager prayer. He means that when we call out to Christ, we do so from the pit of our sin, knowing, believing he is our only hope of salvation. That all that we are in that moment and forevermore will be fully dependent on Christ. That's what it means to call out to God for salvation. It is not enough to merely think it. Saving faith is seen in the whole person. We trust, we depend on, we lean upon Christ in all things. And according to the Bible, that kind of saving faith comes through the preaching of the gospel. That's why, third, we must value gospel preaching. We must value gospel preaching. How do we do that? How do we value gospel preaching? First, by acknowledging that such preaching is required. Gospel preaching is required preaching. Required preaching. Verse 14, Paul begins to fire off a series of questions, questions that form a logical chain, pushing us to see the essentialness of gospel preaching. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Spurgeon is again helpful, if not interesting, as he says in these verses we see here, the whole machinery of salvation. You want to know how it all fits together and how it works? Here it is in these verses. The process of salvation is explained. One is sent, and in being sent, he preaches. Another hears that preaching, which allows him to know of Christ, and therefore believe, and in believing, calling upon him for salvation and forgiveness and life. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, but before that can happen, they have to hear about the Lord from someone preaching. That's Paul's point. If we're to believe in Christ, we must first hear of Christ. Why? Because belief, faith, comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ, Paul says. This is why gospel preaching is absolutely essential. But don't get caught up on that word preaching. What, what I'm doing here, this is preaching, but and I think in what Paul is intending here, this is not exclusively what he means. I think we can rightly say that here, preaching can be any kind of sharing or explanation of Christ's work in the gospel. Any, any talk, whether it's on the phone or via text or just sitting casually over coffee, or a missionary gets a plane and goes and gets sky dropped into some village where they may or may not kill him, but he's got to tell them about Jesus that he is their creator, that they are sinful and deserve hell, but he sent his own son to die for their sins that they might have forgiveness in life. That's preaching the gospel. That's the good news. And no one will ever be saved without it. Do you understand? It doesn't, it doesn't matter if, 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 if somewhere out there you say, well, God will make, a, you know, God will make an ex. No, he won't. I mean, you think about Cornelius in Acts 10. What does an angel do? An angel comes and tells this Gentile, go find a man named Peter and he will tell you the gospel. Now you're thinking, why didn't the angel just tell him the gospel? Because that's not the machinery of salvation that God has designed. 
it is entrusted to us, Jesus' disciples, ones who have heard the preaching of the good news, to in turn go and preach to others that they might be saved. Gospel preaching is required for faith in Christ, but not all who hear believe. Therefore, we must be mindful of rejected preaching. Rejected preaching. In verses 18 through 21, we see why preaching is essential, but it's not enough. Pastor Mark Dever says, though you can't believe without hearing, that doesn't mean that if you do hear, you will believe. The gospel needs not only to be preached, but also to be believed. And here Paul again explains from the scriptures, God's word hasn't failed. It's sobering. It's sad. It's maybe even depressive. But God saw a day when Israel would not believe while others did. He says, how beautiful are those, are the feet of those who preach the good news. But speaking of Israel, they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Paul piles on these quotes in the Old Testament from Psalm 19, from Isaiah, to show Israel's belief wasn't because they didn't know of Christ. Remember, faith comes from hearing the word of Christ, and Paul says, they've heard. They've heard and they've still not believed. The gospel was anticipated, it was preached in the Old Testament scriptures, that it was revealed in the coming of God's own son and the preaching of his apostles. They heard the gospel, but they refused to believe. They rejected the preaching of Jesus as the Christ. But the Gentiles believed. Christ was found by those who did not seek him. The people who should have believed didn't. And yet notice the patience and kindness of God in the face of that rejection. What does verse 21 say? All day long, says the Lord, all day long, I held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Once again, for the last time in this sermon anyway, having Star Wars on my brain, I thought about this, and I just thought about this last movie. You say, wait a minute, spoilers. Nah, it's been out long enough. You should have seen it. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking about the end, and there's that ridiculously long bridge that Han Solo goes out on. And first of all, it's the most unsafe bridge in the world. There's no handrails. I'm thinking, where was OSHA on that? There's just nothing there. But he goes on this long bridge, and I'm thinking, dude, 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 buddy, what are you doing? Your son has turned evil. He is going to the dark side and he's out there with a lightsaber. What are you thinking? Back up. But he just keeps walking and he keeps talking, trying to plead with the son, come back to the good side of things. Resist what is evil. And you're thinking, don't do that. Don't keep going. And he keeps going. And you're, you wanted to yell out of the thing. We know how this is going to end. Get back with Chewie. Come on. But he keeps going, he keeps going, and he keeps going, even to the point of ultimate betrayal. Why? Because he loved his son. And in a whole other unimaginable plane, even today, God keeps coming after us because he loves sinners. In the midst of the worst garbage and most profane wickedness, God keeps coming. He keeps sending his people 
out into the other nations where they get beheaded. They get eaten by cannibals. And he keeps sending them more and more. Why? Because he loves sinners. And so he wants them to hear of Christ, his son. God is patient and kind towards sinners, and he keeps holding out his hands even to those who are disobedient and contrary people. Through the preaching of the gospel, he holds out his hands and he offers us eternal life with him. Will we reject that preaching of the gospel? Will we reject that offer? Or will we obey the gospel and believe? On this Sunday, when we celebrate and worship the resurrected Christ, his centrality to all things cannot be doubted. It cannot be overestimated either. Nor can the salvation he offers be taken for granted. The gospel demands to be preached, to be proclaimed, to be joyfully shared from person to person and shout it from the rooftops. Are you doing that, dear Christian? Are you ever haunted by those that have not believed? For all we know, simply because they've never been told. You may never leave your hometown or my God might call you to the furthest shore imaginable. But all of us must preach. Otherwise, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? The gospel demands to be preached. And that gospel message also demands a response. It cannot be ignored. If you've heard for the first time today about Christ's work for you, or perhaps you've heard it for the hundredth time, but you've not believed, do not reject the patient love of God the Father who sent his Son to be your Savior. Today, call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Father, we are so thankful for that promise. We're so thankful that as those who put your faith in you, we heard someone preaching and we believed. Perhaps, God, it was simply us opening a Bible and you preaching directly from Paul to us after so many hundreds of years. Or perhaps, God, it was a good friend or a loved one or a parent or a pastor. God, whoever it was, we're thankful that you sent someone. They were obedient to that, to that sending call and they preached your son. God, may we be found faithful to do the same. God, when we think about the warning that you gave to Ezekiel, about the watchman who fell asleep on his duty, who failed to signal the alarm when the enemy was coming. And you, you, you asked, will not the blood of the city be on his hands? Oh God, help not the blood of this city be on our hands simply because we did not speak of Christ. And Father, for those that may even be overwhelmed by the message this morning, maybe all new to them, God, we ask that you continue to draw them, help them to see that you are patient and loving and kind, and that, God, you welcome sinners freely and forgive them completely. God, we're so thankful for Christ and his resurrection this morning. We pray these things in his name. Amen.